Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. In the early 1800s, Americans didn't talk much about the Arctic, but the disappearance of the Franklin Expedition changed that. By the 1850s, Arctic exploration had become a fascination, and by the end of the century, they called it Arctic fever. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Kevin Fox interviews me about the history of American Arctic exploration, which was the subject of my first book, The Coldest Crucible. Fox is the host of the radio program Geographical Imaginations for Radio Fabrique in Salzburg, which is also available on iTunes as a podcast. So for us on Geographical Imaginations, we're interested broadly in in how different regions, different countries, different places enters into our imagination. The Arctic is, a, I think, a really particular place that what started to enter into the American popular imagination in the middle of the 19th century? Yeah, that's right. And so for American audiences, they had been really reading about the Arctic intensely since the early 1800s when the British Admiralty attempted a number of expeditions to find the Northwest Passage, really starting in 1818. And because the United States was so dependent really upon British press for decades. American audiences were routinely seeing accounts of expeditions that were coming and going by Ross and Perry and and other individuals. And that led to a crescendo in 1845 when an expedition under the command of Sir John Franklin left England to try to find the Northwest Passage with two ships, 129 men, and disappeared. And so it was really the disappearance of the Franklin expedition and the kind of gradual alarm that grew in England spread to the United States. And in 1850, Lady Jane Franklin, wife of John Franklin, actually petitioned the American president, Zachary Taylor, and asked for his help in sending an American expedition to find Franklin, which was then subsidized by a private patron 
Henry Grinnell, who was uh, basically made his money from shipping and whaling. Right. And using this kind of weird amalgam of a naval expedition that was being funded privately, the first Grinnell expedition, a naval expedition, uh, was sent up to the Arctic to try to find Franklin. Uh, they didn't find Franklin, but they found graves of Franklin's men from the, their first winter campsite. And based on that, Arctic fever, so to speak, caught hold in the United States, and the United States really became a player for the for the next fifty years in uh, in the Arctic. And how many years after was it that you're saying that the expedition to search for him went? Was it five years? So Franklin left in 1845, and these expeditions were provisioned to last anywhere from two to four years. In fact, earlier right. British expeditions had gotten stuck in the ice. And so no one was very worried even after a couple of years, but by 1848 and 1849, relief expeditions had started out. And by 1850, everyone was quite nervous. So that's when the American expedition left. Is this Arctic fever, it, does it start to spread because there's a sense of mission to save people from this this faraway land, this unknown territory? So I think for Americans, there were a couple of things at work. One was that the Arctic by itself was not something that captured the American imagination. I mean, for example, if you go back to the late 1700s, there's almost nothing in the American popular press about the Arctic. They had other things to worry about. And it was really the West. If there was a landscape that was important, it was lands west of the Appalachians that were interesting to American audiences. But I think it was the interest of the British who, in the American imagination, certainly, let's say, the American middle class, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant imagination, it was a place that was important because they could see that the British were not just exploring the Arctic to find a new commercial route, for example, which was the original goal of the Northwest Passage. These expeditions were doing something else, and that was they were attempting to show off British power. They were a form of national prestige. And American audiences did know very much about the success of James Cook's voyages to the Pacific in the late 1700s, because American School children were reading about Cook in their geography yeah. primers and their family atlases. I mean, this stuff was everywhere. So there was a way in which I think American popular audiences already understood that exploration had changed. And it wasn't simply about commercial exploitation or colonization, that it was a way of showing off what we today might call soft power. Yeah. And so the idea that Americans would go into the Arctic and save not just any British expedition, but essentially the cream of the crop, the jewel of the crown, John Franklin and his two ships, was intensely exciting for American audiences. And then attached to that was also all of the kind of aesthetic qualities of the Arctic that had been made popular by the British and other Europeans, this kind of romantic sublime that gets attached to icebergs and the aurora borealis and landscapes right. of the arctic the the term expedition i mean you just mentioned you know sometimes i just go back and look how a dictionary still defines yeah. a word and mm. this is from oxford uh undertaken by a group of people with a particular purpose especially that of uh exploration scientific research or war um, yeah <laughs> yeah this falls in maybe to a a little bit of a 
a different category? Is this, it's not so much empire, you're not colonizing and trying to take over the peoples, but it's also, it's about kind of making some claim to the region. Yeah, so um, that's interesting, the definition you gave, because when I first started wading into the indexes for expeditions in the 1600s and 1700s, when I was writing um, Coldest Crucible, expedition was attached to military endeavors almost exclusively. And I found that really interesting because I didn't know that. Um, I had never grown up thinking about expeditions as military things, but that was the original meaning that that I found when I went to the indexes. And and that begins to change in the 1700s. And I think that the change is interesting because a lot of those 18th century voyages by James Cook, by um, Malaspina or Bougainville or La Perouse, they were national expeditions and often involved naval forces. So yeah. I wonder in a way whether the the meaning of expedition migrated from a military context because these were naval expeditions to the meaning we now think of them as discovery expeditions in the early ni- uh, 19th century. But yeah, to the point of your question, expedition sounds very official. And I think in a way, that's the goal <laughs> of calling it an expedition <laughs> is giving it some symbolic heft because, you know, what's the difference between somebody who travels and somebody who explores? I don't really think they're there is much of one. Or to call somebody an explorer versus a traveler, in many respects, the difference is not a difference of, of kind or of content. It's the difference of who's going out exploring. It's the identity of the person yeah. going out. So for example, you do not often hear of people from, let's say, uh, the Swahili coast who are moving into the into Central Africa in the 1700s as explorers, but they were. Or you don't hear about, let's say, Africans who are crossing the Sahara as part of the trans-Sahara trade as explorers, but they were doing relatively the same thing yeah. that Western pioneers were doing as they moved west. So I, I think in a way, expedition is a term that gives gives symbolic heft to the object of travel. It's not that it's really different in kind. Do we relate explorer to a certain age of transatlantic exploration? Have we had to get away from that term? Is that part of it? Or I, I wrestle with this a lot because I feel that, you know, as I, as I was saying before, I think that people travel for a variety of reasons. They they travel because they want to learn more about the world yeah. or they want to learn more about themselves or they, they want to make money. And those motives, often mixed motives, are true for people around the world, Western, non-Western. And so then the question becomes, what value do we give to this term exploration or expedition when they are really freighted? I think they're really freighted as Western terms. I wrestle with this question a lot. And I think my only answer is to say, I guess it depends upon the project. If you're interested in looking at a specific cultural context, that is North America and Europe in the period from, you know, 1400 to the present, then the word expedition is perfectly acceptable. And you can talk about it in that context. But if you want to dig at 
cross-cultural projects or how other people travel, which is kind of the goal of, of my podcast, actually, is to try to bring those things into conversation, then yeah. expedition isn't really a, a very useful term because it is, it is so freighted. I will just say very briefly that there have been people who've tried to categorize this stuff. William Getzman in the late 60s wrote about there being three ages of exploration, or at least two ages. And then I think uh, Stephen Pine uh, kind of expanded upon that with three ages of exploration, the first of which all of them are very Eurocentric, but the first of which was, um, you know, essentially from Columbus or from the 1400s forward, where it's, uh, you know, sometimes tip typified as the first age of discovery where you have uh, people going out to create missions and get gold and to colonize people. And then you had the second age of exploration, which was the enlightenment period where you guys have guys like Cook and Lewis and Clark, these kind of uh, manifestly scientific expeditions. And then the third age, which Stephen Pine talks about is the 20th century, which he would argue is a ex- the exploration of places without people in them, almost uh, abiotic expeditions undersea to the Antarctic into space. Although I believe that that's actually a not very good way of describing 20th century exploration. But right, and how about with I guess going off that a little bit, um, this idea of the difference of travel and exploration, and to bring the term expedition maybe back in there. Can we say the beginning and the end of an expedition are not when the people board the ship and then disembark it? It's much larger than that. It, it doesn't start when you get on the, the ship. It <laughs> starts much earlier than that. There's a lot of planning, fundraising. There's putting together a team. And then it doesn't end when you come back from it because there's a lot of making it public. Well, one of the, one of the great things for me uh, working on this field now is how much it's changed since when I started. There were very few texts that were looking at expeditions beyond, let's say, the ship leaving the dock and the return, focusing a lot on the voyage and not a lot on these other things. And boy, the field is so interesting now. People are looking at all kinds of different contexts. You know, certainly, let's say, in the 70s and 80s, the idea of exploration changed a lot with the kind of social science revolution brought by Michel Foucault and Edward Said and people beginning to say, well, these are not voyages in a vacuum. How do these affect indigenous peoples, local peoples? So that certainly changed the way these stories were written. And then the things that you were talking about, like, well, what about the, what about the return and the popular reception of them? I'm thinking a uh, really important book for me was Bo Riffenberg's book, The Myth of the Explorer, which I think came out in the early 90s and really talked a lot about the popular reception of exploration. So what's the value of exploration to the to people back home? And that really shaped my interests, I think, in the Arctic. And now, you know, you have this new generation of scholarship and scholars who are looking not only at, let's say, exploration as a place of encounter between uh, explorers and local peoples, and also receptions, but also looking at materials. So Sarah Pickman, for example, at Yale, who I had on the podcast a few months ago, she was talking about reading a number of books for her PhD exams and saying that one of the trends that she noticed was how much 
of a focus there is on the materiality of of exploration, you know, which for me is really cool. It's like an area in which, oh, now we get to dig into that and see how that shapes this story that we keep telling, you know, so. Right. How would the, how would a team be picked? How would the personnel be picked on an expedition? So it depends a lot on the context, but for example, in the Arctic, you had a number of voyages where the team would be selected by the commander as let's say, and I'll use the Arctic as the context since I know it the best, but because the Arctic became increasingly popular in the late 19th century, sometimes you would have hundreds and hundreds of applicants for expeditions. For example, Robert Peary, who led, a, I believe, eight expeditions to, into the Arctic and finally towards the North Pole in an attempt to reach it first. His archives are filled with literally hundreds of letters of application from people around the country who oh, wow. wanted to join his expedition. And he would make these... Um, decisions, you know, himself or with uh, a couple of other people, there are certainly changes in that. I mean, if you, as you move into the 20th century and people start doing social science research and they start really investigating, let's say, small group cohesion and asking the question, you know, what kind of personalities fit together? Well, those decisions about crews change a lot. And uh, I was actually just listening to interviews and oral history with Philip Law, who is the director of the Australian Antarctic Division. And he was talking about, this is an interview that he did when he had retired, I think in 1987. And he was talking about how originally they, they tried to pick like go-getters and big personalities for their Antarctic stations and found that that actually led to a lot of problems. <laughs> and that you had far better luck finding people who were actually a little bit more reserved and who were a bit more flexible and who did not have big opinions about everything. And that those qualities actually also changed over time. As you developed a base and the base matured, you would need different kind of selection devices for your crew. Maybe the recruitment of those popular people was to help get funding? Is that <laughs> is that part of... I mean, you know, money was always an issue, although it didn't show up as much into who you selected for your crewmates because those people might very well die. But it was how you decided to name various things that you found, various capes, bays, mountains, which you would uh, name after your patrons uh, so that they would be uh, proud of all of the money they gave you. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that is part of the... Uh... I don't know, one of the legacies of the of this expedition, this Arctic fever era, uh, are the, the toponyms, the place names yeah, that we still yeah. have there. Uh, is Are there any that you can think of off the top of your head that are funders from the Arctic? Oh, for the, oh yeah. I mean, um, so, well, the, the first, the first name that comes to mind is Crockerland, which was supposedly an island that Peary found on his way back from an Arctic voyage. Attempts were made to find this island off in the distance and no one ever found it, but it was named after a patron, big patron of his expedition. So it was clear that he wanted to, uh, to name this, uh, you know, after someone who had given him a lot of money. And, uh, you know, if you, you, the bays and capes of the Arctic are filled with the names of patrons. Now on the Grinnell 
was it officially called the Grinnell Expedition? Is that yes? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Who was leading that? Is this Elisha Kane? Uh, so or is he the, a member of that first yes, expedition? He was yeah. a member of it. The it was it was actually led by a, um, a naval officer, Edwin De Haven, who uh, was happy to lead the voyage, but didn't want to write about the voyage. Didn't see himself as a writer. So that normal prerogative of the commander to write the narrative of the expedition was delegated to Kane, who was the medical officer. Elisha Kane had been educated at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, was a physician. He had also served in the Mexican-American War. He had traveled around the world and enlisted to join this Grinnell expedition when it left. And when the opportunity was given to him to be the the chronicler of this expedition, he took that up with uh, with zeal, and his his narrative of the first Grinnell expedition became quite a hit. And especially when he came back and wanted to lead his own expedition, the fact that he was actually writing about the first expedition increased his stature. Uh, plus, he knew how to write. I mean, he wrote in that Emersonian romantic style that was quite in vogue in the United States in the years before the Civil War. So it was it sounds quite melodramatic today. It's really quite over the top, but it was uh these kind of majestic, spectacular scenes of Arctic icebergs and and wildlife. Making connections to the classics or to Oh yeah. Yeah. The yep. mythology of Western civilization and allusions to uh Odysseus and Lots of right. Our heroes today are in sports and popular imagination. Actors are heroes in some ways. Were they of this sort of stature? They became of that stature. So it's interesting. There's this shift. The first Grinnell expedition, when it's sent up, I think because this was really new, the American Congress and the American press didn't exactly know what to do with it, but they liked the idea of an American expedition finding the British. So there was a kind of patriotic fervor around it, but it wasn't a fervor that was attached to De Haven or any individual on the expedition, none of whom were known in 1850. Yeah, But the kind of cult of personality around explorers really grew up with Elisha Kane. I mean, he was the Neil Armstrong of the 1850s. Yeah, when he died, I mean, so he led his own expedition in 1853, got stuck in Smith Sound, overwintering in the ice, eventually was able to lead his men out on whaleboats. It's kind of like precursor to the Shackleton expedition. Managed to get everybody out alive except for three men. I think he lost three men. And when he returned in 1855, uh, everyone thought he was dead. So... It was meant with astonishment and glee, and then Cain himself became quite a hero for leading his men out of danger, as well as for writing about it so eloquently. And then Cain himself died of rheumatic fever in 1857, which only catapulted his reputation even higher. So he had a funeral cortege that lasted for three weeks. It was the biggest funeral cortege, I believe, until Abraham Lincoln in 1865. Didn't they sail up the Mississippi or they, they traveled did. up the Mississippi? <laughs> and they went by train. He died, he in, died Cuba. in Cuba. Yeah. At 37 years old, right? Yeah. At 37. Yeah. Dies in Cuba because he went there thinking that was going to be better for his health. That's right. 
and then sails up the Mississippi with stops so that people could pay their respects, right? That's right. Thousands of people showed up in Columbus and in Baltimore. Ultimately, he was laid to rest in Philadelphia, but there's an entire book published just about the funeral cortege for Elijah Kane. It's called Obsequies of Dr. Kane. And it's hundreds of pages of eulogies and descriptions of the passage of his body from Cuba to its final resting place in Philadelphia. It's, it's unbelievable. And the geographical or geographic society of Philadelphia honors someone maybe every decade with a medal in his name. I mean, yeah. it's, it's that popular. Although if I asked uh, social studies students in eighth grade, maybe uh, if they had heard of him, what's, what are most <laughs> U.S. American social studies students in eighth grade going to say? I don't think anybody knows about Kane. It's it's really interesting the afterlife of explorers because right. it's hard hard to predict actually. I mean, Lewis and Clark, for example, who every middle school kid knows about, were relatively unknown in the 19th century. They were only really uh, rediscovered after the centennial exposition for Lewis and Clark in. 1905, that put them back on the map because so much about Lewis and Clark had been lost. Uh, You know, their materials had been lost. uh, They were eclipsed by other explorers. I mean, they just really weren't known about. And yet in the 20th century, they've become huge figures. Whereas people like um, Elisha Kane or Alexander von Humboldt are really not talked about very much in popular culture. You know, it's the same with Shackleton. Until the film was made, yeah. yeah. The, or the book came out first, but yeah. You know, Robert Falcon Scott was the great martyr of uh, Antarctic exploration. Uh, he died, you know, at a time when Britain was gearing up for the First World War, and it was all of a piece, right? Somebody who gave his life for British patriotism. And Shackleton, by contrast, was a guy who, you know, never even made it to the Antarctic mainland. His ship was crushed, and he he came back, you know, with his crew. So it was really only in the 1960s that Scott disappears or becomes looked at differently. And then Shackleton rises. So it's really interesting the way these things, these afterlives of explorers. Yeah. I'm curious, I guess, a little bit too about to continue with Kane, for instance, you know, his popularity. I think writing a book is really important and, and that gives him a, a platform uh, but, you know, was he also giving speeches and, and giving presentations in cities that he visited? Also, is he just engaged in that public forum of bringing the world home? Yes, he was. Uh, and he gave dozens and dozens of lectures between the first, ex- first Grinnell expedition and the yeah. second Grinnell expedition that he led. And he, he lectured widely, especially on the East Coast. And there are also accounts of his expeditions in the newspapers. And from those, we know that interest in exploration was not limited to people like Kane. It was broadly popular with working class and middle class audiences, with men and women. I mean, the, the writings of women about Kane are quite incredible. Um, people who see him as a model of manliness or who are 
taken with his writings, his evocative romantic writings, his gothic writings. In fact, kind of the point of my first book, uh, Coldest Crucible, is to look at the Arctic not as a place in and of itself, but as a kind of stage for Americans to talk about things that they think are really important. One of which is, what does it mean to be a man in the 19th century? What does it mean to be a man of character? And how that idea changes from Elisha Cain, who was, you know, he was short. He was suffering from rheumatic fever from the age of 19. He spoke in a kind of dreamy, gothic way about uh, life in the Arctic, who is described by his men as motherly or feminine in his qualities. And yet all of those things together combine to make him an icon of manliness. Whereas at the end of the 19th century, when you look at a guy like Robert Peary, who was also praised by dozens and dozens of women, again, his archives are filled with postcards and letters from fans, women fans, often describe him as a man in very different terms, as as being strong, as being brave, as being a man of few words, of being tough. It's a very different model of what it means to be a man. And I think you see it in the way that they're described by their their followers. So a complete public persona is being developed through their own writings, the writings of others, newspapers. There's all this reading material, so to speak. So people are are plugged in. They're They're following their lives in some ways. They do take on this superstar persona. Yes. And also it becomes a persona that they can't control entirely because the press of the 1850s may not have been a celebrity press in the way that we, you know, think about, you know, TMZ or (laughs) other people magazine, you know, uh, today, but it was nevertheless a kind of booster press, a press that was interested in showing the good side. Whereas the press of the late 19th century was a press that was perfectly willing to make heroes out of explorers and knew that this could actually help promote circulation to do that, but was also perfectly willing to throw explorers under the bus if the controversies about their lives sold more newspapers. So you had individuals like Kane, who almost was inoculated from some of the controversies around his expedition because papers wouldn't talk about it. But by the late 19th century, explorers are often making deals with newspapers to fund their expeditions. And when these expeditions go wrong, oftentimes newspapers, certainly rival newspapers, would attack them mercilessly for flaws in leadership or flaws in character. So you see spectacular controversies about these expeditions by Peary, by Adolphus Greeley, by others, which are really the product of this new media environment. Is the media and the increased involvement in the media and shaping the narrative about Arctic exploration, is that part of why it falls sort of away? I think it's why... Arctic explorers become tarnished figures in the eyes of the American public. I mean, by 1910, when you have this huge controversy between Robert Peary and 
and Frederick Cook over who stepped on the North Pole first. All right. By the time 1910 passes, people are so sick of this story and they think in so poor esteem of these two individuals because they've fallen so far from this kind of model of uh, patriotic or manly behavior that, uh, you know, it's still a story in the news, but it's no longer, people are no longer talking about Arctic explorers as men of character. Yeah. And so I think the public retains a fascination with exploration. I don't think that goes away. And I don't think the press leaves it alone either, because you can find really at the end of the Arctic quest, so to speak, really the beginning of the Antarctic quest. I mean, the Antarctic becomes a huge area of interest, as well as other projects, for example, anthropological projects, right. exploration of uh, Papua New Guinea and, and uh, Africa and the works of Margaret Mead and Lewis and Maeve Leakey. And, you know, so there, and then of course the space race and, you know, attempts to go underwater. So, I mean, I think there's a thirst among the public for these stories, Yeah. but I think that there's no longer, there's no longer a protected space in the way that there was in the middle decades of the 19th century. Right. So how is the expedition model of the Arctic era of exploration, how is that informing or being informed by previous and informing the future? Yeah. So I would say that there are definitely lines of influence that you can trace. So for example, we, we started the interview talking about military expeditions. And I think that in many ways, those structures influenced big Arctic expeditions by the British, by the Americans in the 19th century. And that you can see the influence of those types of expeditions on, for example, mountaineering expeditions, British mountaineering expeditions in the 20th century or Antarctic expeditions, which were really big affairs. You needed a lot of people. You needed a huge amount of coordination. But at the same time, there are, are many expeditions that fall outside of that path. There were a lot of one-man bands. Charles Hall, who uh, explored the Arctic, did so on a shoestring budget, basically by himself, looking for John Franklin. And there are dozens and dozens of those expeditions. There are also private expeditions that are outfitted by uh, newspapers or by wealthy patrons, uh, much in the way that we have today, wealthy patrons funding, let's say, new space companies trying to send spacecraft into space. So there's a lot of diverse models. But yes, there are through lines that go through the Arctic, and there are ways in which Arctic exploration, I think, echoes very strongly with 20th century space exploration in terms of its use to the American government as a form of soft power, as well as a kind of model for how you deal with tragedy when it inevitably happens through expeditions. So you, for example, you have two massive catastrophes in the Arctic with the Dolphus Greeley expedition and the DeLong expedition. The number of casualties from these expeditions was almost 40 men. And uh, the way that the American public and the government dealt with these expeditions echoes in certain ways the way that we dealt with, let's say, the explosion of Challenger and Columbia in the late 20th century. 
So they're really interesting patterns, but, but it is a diverse group of things that we call expeditions. So I want to thank Michael Robinson for joining us from Hartford. Thank you, Michael. Kevin, thank you so much. It was really, really fun to uh, talk to you. That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.